0: Hello and welcome to show 5 of this Dynasty Fantasy Football Show. As always, I'm your host, CJ Friel, and on today's show, I'll be digging into what I believe may be the most controversial set of players... In the 2024 draft class, the tier two wide receivers, those that are ranked below Marvin Harrison Jr., Malik Neighbors, and Roma Dunze. I did rank my wide receivers 8 through 15 on the previous show, so with those guys all out of the way, that leaves the four wide receivers left with Troy Franklin, Keon Coleman, Brian Thomas Jr., and A.D. Mitchell, the guys that are going to fill in those spots from four to seven. I wouldn't consider this a ranking show like the first and fourth show were ranking shows, but I do re-rank the players after my analysis of them. The rankings here are still changing a little, but I did wait, walk away feeling in particular like these four wide receivers were firmly placed for me in the correct tier, that none of them challenged the top three, but that none of them really were falling out of the top seven four Me. The profiles on this show will be far longer and go into far more detail than anything I've done here before. And the conversation surrounding just the four wide receivers alone is about a full hour. It could probably have been a bit tighter or slightly better organized, but it's mostly this long because it is a deeper analysis of the analytics, the traits, and the film of these four players with comparisons and context that goes into each of them. And because there is so much content on this show, with just the player profiles, I do get into the Troy Franklin part right away after this introduction section. So look at the timestamps, but it should only be a few minutes after this point. Once again, if you are interested in watching segments of this show with visual aids, I do produce those and put those on YouTube throughout the week. It's easier to get this full audio podcast out in one at the beginning of the week. Sometimes I will still have two podcast episodes. I'm thinking about that for this week as well. But if you're looking for a little bit of a a supplement or some visual aid for some of the numbers on a a deeper dive show like this, you can find the segments a little bit later on the week, uh, in the week on YouTube. On that note, just one quick note of upkeep before I get into the bulk of the show. You may notice a difference in the audio and that is because I am trying to improve the quality of this show consistently. This is a very recent unboxing so still working out some of the settings, the environmental issues, but I do want to again say that it is my goal to continue to polish this product and I am very glad for the people who have joined me on this early trip and seem to find some value in this content even if it does not have your standard quality of production. I do want to reach out once again first just to say that do always consider it genuine when I ask ask if anyone has something to look into or any show ideas depending on timing i may end up making a second podcast this week i'm not sure but i i would like to get some ideas regardless you know keep in mind if this is the only show you listen to that doesn't do say ten thousand downloads an episode you legitimately do have the ability to influence what is discussed on this show i also want to say that on that note i am hoping to start working a bit more on the infrastructure on certain podcasting apps so that it is more easily downloadable and so, hopefully, when that happens, there will be various plat- podcasting platforms that will be more important to get feedback on. But for now, if you have not subscribed to the Substack and are interested in any updates to this Substack channel, I would encourage you to do so. It does mean a lot to me, and I'm glad to see the show even have a very small following. And on that note, time to just get on with the show. So, I'm not going to go into a discussion about the wide receiver position or philosophy before discussing these four players. Ultimately, I do find it very important, and I've heard people say that they like those discussions, but I don't know that I could talk about it again for the third time in five shows, at least without sounding massively repetitive. So if you are interested, the first and fourth shows have wide receiver rankings and the position of wide receiver is discussed before those ranking sets. The only thing I want to establish here are just a few basic ground rules for what constitutes a good number in some of these categories, just because, you know, not everybody works with these numbers very often. So the main number I calculate myself for this is proportional receiving yards or the receiving yards a player has divided by his team's available receiving yards, I'm really looking for seasons of at least 25% and hopefully at least over 30% for a peak season. Obviously, a little bit less is fine in the sophomore year, maybe 20, 25% instead. Uh, touchdowns a little bit higher is ideal, but there are, t- touchdowns are considered fluky on the NFL level, so I don't like to get too stressed about one bad touchdown season in the grand scheme of things. It's also worth noting that I exclude all FCS games from my numbers. While there are a lot of huge talent gaps in college football at the FBS level, this creates a clear divide and games against these FCS schools commonly have immense spreads, 45, 50 points. And that's usually because the second half will be a running clock, right? So any of those schools that aren't in the top division of the 130 plus teams, any stats from those games are omitted. And then I also would just because this comes up with another player, I would take out garbage time if possible, but I don't have any way to do it mathematically easily without doing some things that would be very subjective. So I do not take out garbage time, but when I do know that a player, say, had some some big time garbage time in a game or something, I might make an annotation about it just in case, but obviously I don't find it, you know fair to compare that to the numbers of other players you know without taking that garbage time into account and then i also use yards per out run throughout this it's a statistic that i think a lot of people like because it builds sample quickly uh, but the only thing you really need to know is that most numbers are going to be in the twos right every most numbers are going to be between two and three and those are most of your numbers that you're going to have to put context to with the high twos being very good when players go over three, that's obviously what you consider to be closer to great, or the things that you're really looking for. When players are under two, that's when it's it's really concerning, and those are the profiles that you have to really make some arguments for and look for some context to find why they couldn't do a little bit better with the opportunities they had. So on to Troy Franklin, the wide receiver from Oregon. So when it comes to a lot of these profiles, I'm probably going to be handling the objective information first right the the information that we know to be true and Maybe not even all the things that we know to be true, but are at least listed and will eventually become objective. And you'll know what I mean by that in a second. But Troy Franklin's age, I have down at 21 years, seven months, as of September 1st. That makes him the 10th youngest wide receiver on my list between the 2022 and 2024 draft classes, uh, since there's only nine above him. That means Drake London, Malik Neighbors, Keon Coleman, who I'll talk about in a bit, Keishon Butte, Marvin Mims, Xavier Worthy, Jameson Williams, George Pickens, and Jordan Addison. Those are the only nine wide receivers I have on my list as being younger than Troy Franklin in the last two years. And then what I was talking about earlier, objective but not verified, his listed size from the University of Oregon, six foot three, one hundred and eighty seven pounds. So the one hundred and eighty seven pounds, probably the first thing you want to start on right there, right? That that's gonna be a BMI red flag for for most for most people and most likely. Again, we don't have the official measurements, but you don't really need the official measurements just look at Troy Franklin and know that that's a guy who's probably skinny and probably going to be skinny his whole life, you know. Different people have different body types. Obviously there's an extent to which strength and conditioning programs can help, but there's also an extent to which people are just built differently. There's some people who have wider frames or some people who have narrow frames and that's just, you know, the way things are. So uh, Franklin does test or does measure out well, or should measure out well in height and length. I'm very interested to see what the official length is in particular, because having that length with his speed working down the field is a very intriguing combination. Uh, But the, the real important thing, and it is still getting into the objective parts of things, is that Troy Franklin, by far, on this list of four very good wide receivers, is by far the best analytical prospect. Troy Franklin really represents, in a lot of ways, and this is one of the main reason I'm doing Troy Franklin first, the ideal of what I'm looking for when I'm looking over some of these numbers, right? Because not only did Troy Franklin hit the exact numbers I'm looking for, or the higher ends of those exact numbers, but he did it in a very natural or progressive way I guess is what I'm trying to get where in his freshman year he had over 15 receptions 200 yards two touchdowns you know good but not not a ton but exactly what you're expecting out of freshmen he improved a good amount in his sophomore year he ended up having 24 percent of his team's receiving yards he had 32 percent of the touchdowns. Again, that's right in my goal range. And then he improved even more in the junior year, at least in terms of the yards, going up to 31.3%. Now, his touchdowns did dip slightly to 30%, but Troy Franklin's also probably not archetypal to be the guy that you're expecting to get a lot of touchdowns, especially compared to everybody else on this list. Mitchell, Thomas, Coleman, those are three guys that you're thinking are red zone warriors. Franklin's probably going to get most of his touchdowns from big plays and most of his yardage from big plays, or rather uh, most of his fantasy points from big plays. So I don't think we're looking for huge numbers in the touchdown category, but, you know, 30 is still a, a, a very solid number for Franklin. And so, you know, you're seeing this, not only are these numbers very good, but they're representing a progression for somebody who is very young. So he comes in very young, does decent. Next year's a little older, does better. Next year's a little older, does better. And you also see things that he's getting better at as well, right? So, I mean, I don't use PFF receiving grades very often generally, but in terms of like as a a data point, but I think it's just cool to see it look exactly like this because it goes from 63 to 75 to 87 almost a perfect with with the decimals it's probably not but almost a perfect linear progression right pretty much the exact same thing with the yards per route run right 1.43 2.34 great progression there in terms of uh, yards after catch per reception that has gone up each year with a big jump from the second to the third year or to the most recent year. And one thing you want to check for when somebody's yards after catch goes up is if they, you know, were using any kind of different roles. And I didn't do any kind of super deep digging into that specifically for, you know, this kind of statistical analysis, but I will say his A dot went up from his second to third year, which doesn't necessarily suggest that the role is the reason that his yak went up. It seems to suggest that maybe he's just getting a little bit better at it. And this is a little bit into the the film stuff that we're going to get into maybe, and you know, this may be kind of a, a transition into that. But I also think that you can see nuances growing in his film. Now, he might not be the most technical or refined in everything as a wide receiver, but he seems to have a bit more of a natural feel to the position, how to play off his guy, when to sit down, where to sit down, You know, all kinds of things that can really help. And I think building those, those nuances that lead to consistency, I think those are the things that are hard for us to determine that often are the reasons that certain wide receivers are successful over a long period of time. And then there was also kind of a false improvement, I guess is how I wrote it down on my list, which was just the hands. So he did flash a few drops in that freshman year, and then that kind of went completely away in the sophomore year. He even flashed good numbers as a contested catch wide receiver. And overall, he only had two drops in the sophomore year, despite going up over 80 targets. However, there were a lot more drops this year, including all, uh, about nine drops was, was the number that PFF got. But just just in the games that I watched leading up to this conversation, there were three drops in two games in a row that I watched to start this evaluation in the Texas Tech and Utah game that I wrote on. All three of them that they were just they were just can't happen drops, and it's 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 kind of like this double edged thing to where it is a good thing that Troy Franklin is putting himself in position to have drops that can be this bad. But the thing is drops aren't equal in the sense that some drops are just the difference between how far you're going to punt at the end of the day, but some drops are points and Troy Franklin's had drops or had drops this year that are points and he had a few of them. And so that's just, you know, something to keep an eye on. When you look at his contested catch numbers, over the last two years combined, put them together it's really exactly what you're looking for for a wide receiver like Franklin on on the PFF scale but but the drops are something that are, are really going to be something that you got to look out for for a player like this because if you can break NFL secondaries so frequently that you can get away with drops, that's great. but most likely you're only going to break break free a few times and if you don't take the most of those opportunities, you're both not going to last long in the league and you're not going to put up big fantasy points for your team, right? So, So next up, I have traits here. And the first thing I wrote on traits is just speed, 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 speed. And then in terms of going back a little bit to the yak thing, What's really impressive about Troy Franklin is just how well he keeps his feet. Not only in terms of, like, from a balance perspective, but he keeps them moving. Like, at, at every level of football, they tell you, especially in trenches-type things or in running back-type things, you keep your feet moving. Troy Franklin seems to do that really well, too, as as just a ball carrier. Now, he doesn't have the core strength or just the, the general uh, power as, as a runner that if he gets squared up, he's going down. But if he gets a reflexive shot if he moves to the point where the uh, the tackler isn't exactly squaring him up very well at all he can really easily pull out of those and keep his feet moving and turn away and be a little bit slippery and with his speed one slip up from the defense from a boundary corner can be absolutely devastating so it's it's a it's a big thing to have in his game because not every wide receiver especially not every tall, thin wide receiver has that naturally because being tall isn't necessarily a good thing for you know breaking tackles because you're you got that high center of gravity and you know it's just it's just a na- nice natural balance to see from Franklin and that's going to be uh, a positive to add to his you know his repertoire as well and then finally and, and you really get to see this when defenders back off of Franklin but Franklin is more than just the speed, he is the ability to vary his speeds. And, and you really get to see that a lot on his tape. Because and, and compared to the other three guys that I'm talking about today, a lot of the other three guys on, on this on this list, yes, they do vary things, but compared to the way that Franklin gears up and gears down. And, and sits on things, and slows up, and then accelerates quickly, and then can do a little quick double move, and you can t- tell that he's selling defenders on things, too. It really is a significant you know trait or tool in his bag uh, that is a significant positive, and something that is a significant part of the way he can at least potentially have success at the next level. And then just talking about the bad traits a little bit, you know, the one that's obviously going to come to mind and was kind of referred to a little bit earlier with the, 187 pounds is just the play strength. Is he going to be able to survive press? You know, I haven't found any tape of him having a particular issue against PAC 12 press, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's not going to have trouble at the NFL level with press, especially because I think, you see a lot of these Pac 12 corners that aren't necessarily high, high level, you know, NFL corners. And I think they're afraid to lean in and really try to jam him up and, and beat him. You know, that's the real thing you're worried about, obviously, with that kind of press is not that, you know, he's even gonna get slowed up, but that he's gonna get really manhandled by a couple physical corners every now and then. And, you know, will that happen? I'm not sure. Maybe he's too quick. Maybe he's too fast. But we haven't really seen it tested in the same way, right? The the physical build that you're going to think of with Troy Franklin is Devonta Smith. But Devonta Smith had a lot of tape at the SEC level against press coverage, and he was dominant against it. And so that's a very significant difference between the two. And then, you know, there's just going to be all kinds of you know you want to say that well that's a dpi well that's a dpi well that's a dpi that's pass interference but you're not going to get the call all the time that's just that's just the world and troy franklin is going to have to deal with some things with people trying to you know move his angle and push him off of his spa, and grab his waist a little bit and all kinds of things and should some more of them be called maybe maybe but He's not probably going to get them all, and so how he plays through those those little bits of contact or if he can avoid those little bits of contact with his speed is going to be absolutely vital to how he can succeed or, or if he'll succeed at the next level. And then I did already talk about this a bit, but it's just the hands. The hands are more of a question, you know. If you average out the two years, there's definitely not a concern at all with this speed archetype, with this length. Uh, But if he is more so the wide receiver in the junior year, a, a Ted Ginn comp could potentially come to mind as a scary one. You know, Ted Ginn was a guy who could get behind defenses. But he dropped the ball, and I think something that I said as someone who liked Troy Franklin going into this year was I was really impressed at the improvement in the drops, and I wanted to see if the improvement in the drops and the contested catch percentage that he put up last year were sticky, and they were not. In 2023, they went went down, and so that's just a significant factor. But at the end of the day, I just think Troy Franklin's someone who's very hard to... design a scheme against because if you press him at the line you have a chance to completely bully him but if you don't bully him you're taking a big risk of him getting behind you and if you give him space a lot of guys because they don't vary as well as troy franklin because they don't sit as well as troy franklin because they don't have as much feel for where the appropriate spot in the zone is and because they also maybe aren't as good at having a chance to break the tackle afterward, they're less effective in that area. But because Troy Franklin does vary so much when you go off coverage, it's not like he's just going to run straight at you and not know what to do about it because of all these little variances. I think that's where you can really see uh, the way he's going to have success at the next level. And I also think that those little variances add to him consistently getting production and, That consistent production is showing up in the statistics and why he's showing up as the best analytical prospect of these four. So on a final note, while Franklin does have concerns stemming from his stature and some poor drops in 2023, there is just enough start-stop, easy speed, and insane top speed for me to rank Franklin probably as my wide receiver four at this point. He was my wide receiver five coming into the evaluation, and there's really not a huge difference between the two right now, but I definitely don't think he's outside. Out of everybody here, I don't think he's outside the top five wide receivers at the end of the day. And so especially under equivalent draft capital, I think that's the trickiest part with me right now with Troy Franklin. If Keon Coleman in particular, but really Keon Coleman, Brian Thomas Jr., Adonai Mitchell, if those guys go top 20, top 25 and Troy Franklin does slip to the, the 40th pick, the 50th pick, I'm going to pick those guys first probably because even though I like Franklin and I do think there's a lot of misses at all these ranges at the wide receiver position, there's a big enough difference there and a small enough difference in my scouting grades for these four right now that I would bump Franklin to the bottom. And I'm a little worried that Franklin is going to be at the bottom of draft capital because of his size. But if all things are equal with draft capital, I think right now, Franklin would probably be my wide receiver four. Now, I do think Coleman and Thomas are probably the most likely to get drafted highly, and that's probably a decent segue into talking about the two of them, because they're the two I'm going to be talking about next. Now, I'm doing these two together because I think they they bring up some similar conversations, And similarly to Franklin, we'll just start with some of the more objective information between the two of them. So Keon Coleman, you might have noticed Keon Coleman's name came up as one of the wide receivers younger than Troy Franklin. I have Keon Coleman's age down at 21 years, three months, and I believe he turns 21 in mid-May, so he will be drafted at 20 years old. He is the second Youngest wide receiver in the class behind Malik Neighbors, and he is the third youngest wide receiver that I have evaluated in 2022, 2023, and 2024. Keon Coleman is also listed by Florida State University at six foot four inches and 215 pounds, which probably gives him the best overall size on this, because while. Every single player on this list is at least 6'3". He is the only one who weighs in at over 205 pounds. Uh, And then on that note, Brian Thomas Jr., age of 21 years, 11 months. So the difference here is uh, he's in the middle of the first and second quartile. So if you don't speak math, I break my age list into four groups the groups are of equal size right so each group has about a quarter of the people in it so the first group would be the young group the second group would be the slightly young group the third group would be the slightly old group and the fourth group would be the old group uh 21 years 11 months is actually the age that switches from the young group to the slightly young group so brian thomas junior is right on that line which basically makes him you know young but not as young as the extremely young guys, right? You know, he's he's eight months older than Coleman. Not a huge difference, but still. Uh, and he is listed at six foot four, two hundred and five pounds by LSU, which is a little bit light, especially for how tall he is. And you can tell that he's light on his film and just watching him in general. But I wouldn't consider any player here to have a size red flag. It's not like they're one eighty five. It's not like they have a huge BMI issue. So these two players. Not ideal necessarily in every way and what is ideal with size, but nobody has a red flag here, uh, especially versus someone like Troy Franklin. Uh, Brian Thomas Jr. also just talking physically I think his 40 time is going to be plus plus and Coleman's I'm not as sure about I do think Coleman is fast and explosive but he's definitely I definitely don't think he's testing fast in the same way that Brian Thomas Jr. is testing fast and Brian Thomas Jr. is also pop off the screen fast which is an important distinction uh, between the two. Um, so I've been going back and forth between this process. At one point during this process, I thought I was going to end up with Coleman and Brian Thomas Jr. at basically the exact same grade. And I'll get into what, you know, how I'm grading them right now by the end of this. But I guess what I'm just trying to say is that these are two very close players and I feel very similarly about them. So some of these things that I'm about to say might frame one in a better light than the other or vice versa. And you know, it's just it's just the way I see production and some objective information compared to these two players. It's not necessarily, you know, choosing one over the other. Obviously, at the end of the day, with rankings, you always have to choose one over the over the other. But these are very similar players, right? And so, on that point, I think it's important to note that by the way I do things, Keon Coleman has a very underrated season. Speaking specifically to his twenty twenty two, that does not get it, give it enough credit. While Brian Thomas Jr.'s 2023 season is fairly overrated, it's not bad, but it's fairly unimpressive in terms of a peak season in a lot of ways, right? So first things first, Keon Coleman entered his peak season of 2022 at 19 years, three months. And he had 22.4% receptions, 27.7% of yards, and 30.4% of touchdowns. So that's the best sophomore year on this list. That's a better sophomore year by these proportional numbers than Troy Franklin's sophomore year. And then Jaden Reed was on that team, and he outproduced Jaden Reed overall, and he outproduced Jaden Reed in five of the 11 games he played in. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of different things that go into those specific games, but it's important to note that Jaden Reed's starting age was 22 years, four months that year. So he was three years older than Coleman. So even though you can say all kinds of things about, say, Reed's injuries that year, and he was banged up for a good portion of the year, it's still significant to note that Keon Coleman was three years younger and going tit for tat for a guy who was drafted top 50 in the NFL draft Uh, Brian Thomas Jr.'s peak season uh, he entered it at 20 years 11 months so this past season he turned uh, 21 years old in October uh, to Keon Coleman has not turned 21 years old yet and so before his his breakout season he was 20 years 11 months which is one year eight months older than Keon Coleman was in his peak season And then for some of these numbers, 23.8% receptions, 26.7% yards, 38.6% touchdowns. Essentially the point being, you know, Coleman's yardage percentage is 1% higher. Okay. Who cares about the 1%? They're, They're the same, but with similar proportions, Keon Coleman puts up the similar proportion at an age that's 20 months younger. And Brian Thomas Jr. is an age that, Coleman hasn't actually gotten to yet. Like as of today, he still hasn't gotten there uh, because he, you know, won't be there until middle of April. He won't be a month away from being 21. You know, it's important to note there's all kinds of different circumstances around these players, you know, Malik Neighbors, Malik Neighbors versus Jaden Reed. But, you know, there's also some some things circumstantially. I mentioned junk time or uh, garbage time scoring early on in the show. And I don't know if Coleman has any of it. I don't know for a fact Coleman has any of it. But I can tell you that I wrote up Brian Thomas Jr. after week one of the college football season uh, for a post on Reddit as a potential breakout based on that Florida State LSU game worth talking about specifically because he just had a really good game and his physical size. It was just Brian. C- certain breakouts are hard to peg. Certain breakouts are not. When someone like Brian Thomas Jr. Starts doing things, you pay attention right away with how big and fast he is. Right. And my point in saying that is that I wrote up about how half his stats in that game were crap because he got them all. And the last drive or two of the game, when it was pretty much over and he had a 75 yard touchdown, basically as time expired, that, that, I think put him down like two touchdowns Uh, regardless of the exact details. The point is that, you know, Brian Thomas jr. Did get a lot of garbage time stuff just in that game. And so, you know, I'm not trying to make too much about this or the garbage time or anything like that. But when you're, you know, if he was at 35%, it wouldn't matter, but he's only at 26.7% because when you have 1100 yards with the Heisman trophy winner, and he's actually throwing 11 yards an attempt, it's just not quite as impressive. That's why I do this proportional production stuff. Because I don't think a a season like Thomas Jr.'s is that impressive from a production standpoint. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean it can't be the most impressive season of these two players, right? If you want to say that Brian Thomas Jr.'s 2023 is the most impressive season, that's absolutely fine to say. Like, there's no problem with that, especially depending on how you're defining impressive. You're just defining impressive by what you were impressed by on the NFL field. It makes perfect sense to believe in that. But proportionally, statistically, analytically, objectively, looking at these players through a lens that I look through every player through, I would give Coleman's sophomore year, his peak season, say, a B-plus or an A-minus. I would give Thomas's junior year, Probably a B, maybe a B minus, because it's a solid year, but he's almost 21 at the beginning of it. It's got some ups and downs, and he was very much utilized in a peripheral role compared to someone like Malik Neighbors. And that's not entirely his fault, but at the same time, it just is the reality of the situation. And so for that reason, I would grade his peak season from a production and objective standpoint Far lower than I would grade Coleman's peak season. Now, one thing that he does get on Coleman is the peak yards per out run because his yards per out run this LSU season was 2.6 compared to Coleman's 2.07. But again, there's just context numbers because the quarterback that Coleman played with that year had a yards per attempt of 6.9. Daniels had a yards per attempt of 11.7. So, you know, I really don't know what to make of these yards per out run numbers at this level. You know, that's why I always say. I don't make black and white lines, but it is important to note Brian Thomas Jr.'s was better, but his situation, especially for this statistic, was better. And then if you're going into their second-best seasons, it's not going to be close, because Coleman's second-best season is 2023, and he was still solid. He still ended up with 22.1% of yards, which is very much not what you want building from a 27% season to go down 5% and have your yards per out run go down to 1.74, but he still had 45.6% of the touchdowns. He still had 22% of, of the yards. And he's crucially still entered this season at 20 years, three months, Brian Thomas, Jr. Entered his sophomore year at 19 years, 11 months, which if you're not following the numbers there, Coleman's closer in his third year, to where Brian Thomas Jr. was when he hadn't broken out yet. And in Brian Thomas Jr.'s second-best season, he had 9.1% of the yards. It wasn't even close. It's almost not worth bringing up because he just wasn't a very impactful player in that season. So, you know, Coleman has two seasons that I consider relevant. Brian Thomas has one. Coleman's peak season is better. So from these production and proportional analytic things, it really isn't that close. Now, Keon did have a pretty significant slide down the end, of his FBS career in the last three games of his career. He had 21 targets, nine receptions, 67 yards and one touchdown. And again, that's 67 total yards in three games. He did have an ankle injury during that time. And so, you know, you could argue that he's toughing it out through that, but definitely not the the numbers that help you out there. And then Coleman also had two drops during this three-game span, which is, I guess, significant just because they were his only two drops. So you don't want to really make too much of that as a negative because you really can't make drops into a negative for Coleman unless you know there's, there's some stat source that's different than the one I'm looking at that has him credited with a lot of drops. But you can also be pretty cynical about Coleman's number of drops and say that usually you don't get credited with drops when you're covered. And the big argument that people use against Coleman is that he's covered far too often or at least doesn't separate enough. But uh, it's probably best to separate them more entirely for, for the film process. So hopefully comparing them through the first section wasn't too confusing. And you can see maybe why I was doing it because of the looking at these two together and and seeing how these production things can, can compare with players but I'm gonna tackle Brian Thomas jr first because I find him easier to talk about that doesn't necessarily mean a, a good or bad thing for his profile it just means that there's I just find him really easy to break down into strengths and weaknesses starting right with the most obvious positive for either one of these players which is that he just has Lightning speed, especially for someone that is his size. I don't think he's as fast as Troy Franklin, but I don't think Troy Franklin can play above the rim like Brian Thomas can. Brian Thomas has legit, legit height. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Keon Coleman measured in at under six foot four, but Brian Thomas Jr., I think, is probably a legitimate six foot four. And so with that six foot four size, with a little bit of weight, being able to fly down the field like he can it's just it's just a very impressive and very obvious thing you know brian thomas jr came into this evaluation as the lowest wide receiver of the four for me and so i kind of turned on some basic highlighty just random youtube clip stuff of him first and the thing right away that you just go like Man, he does pop with his speed. He just, he moves and he moves for a big guy that you don't expect to move like that. And then he shows some tenacity at the catch point. Now, it's a low volume thing, right? He hasn't actually had that many contested catch attempts. I've seen some people online refer to Brian Thomas as more of a taller you know, quick re- wide receiver in, in the sense that he's he's running routes or running the role or operating in the archetype of a smaller wide receiver despite being big. and he's not necessarily using all of that size. And I've seen a lot of pushback on that, too. But frankly, I don't think it's that wrong. I think Brian Thomas Jr. has a lot of, you know, when I was playing when I was playing a lot of Madden, I would have specific roles for certain wide receivers and I would have one guy on my team, no matter what, who was just flat out fast. And he had two roles and he, those two roles were run deep and run a drag. And a lot of times during Brian Thomas Jr.'s tape, it wasn't obviously that, but there were a lot of times watching Brian Thomas Jr.'s tape where it really reminded me of how I would use that player. Where It was like, okay, on this play, you're just running really deep, really fast. Okay, on this play, you're just turning right and running that way. Okay, on this play, you're just kind of selling something really quickly. It was just just very much that. And because of that, you didn't really see him get many contested catch opportunities. Again, he did a fairly good job with them. You saw a couple of them in the end zone that were fairly spectacular. But at the end of the day, he was, I believe, utilized more like a smaller wide receiver or a smaller wide receiver in a big wide receiver's body, I guess is what I was trying to say earlier. Now, I think people get a little afraid of that specifically because that's something that was said about Quentin Johnston. But I don't think he's anything like Quentin Johnston for a number of levels. And to be fair, I did like Quentin Johnston a decent bit. But Quentin Johnston was very horizontal. Quentin Johnston was very much like give him the ball and let him run, to whereas Brian Thomas Jr.'s appeal is vertical. It is let him run downfield and then pop the ball to him. And you see a lot more success in the vertical tree, and that is where Johnson has struggled the most. So I, I do think that you could call them both players who played at the college level in roles that are most often suited for smaller players, but I don't think Johnston and Thomas are... Very similar, honestly. So, just I guess giving that all as an as a kind of a full idea there. When it comes to wide receiver scouting, I think I break down traits into two basic categories, which are separation and point of attack. And separation, I typically define as being more important, and I think the confusion when you're looking at these two players between Thomas and Coleman is that Thomas is the one that more represents separation. And so for that reason, you would think that he would be ranked higher. But my problem is that Thomas doesn't necessarily separate technically or separate with skill. He separates physically. And so when I'm comparing the two, when I'm only seeing Thomas separate physically That gives me some pause because his speed is excellent and it it jumps off the page, but I don't have enough evidence personally that he's going to be able to best utilize it in the way that, you know, Troy Franklin best utilizes it. You know, if Brian Thomas Jr. varied his speed with the nuance and the timing and the understanding of nuance and timing that Troy Franklin does... He would be like a top 10 wide receiver tomorrow with his strength and size and ability to play over what Troy Franklin can at the point of attack, even if I'm not really classifying him as a point of attack guy. But I haven't seen that yet. So because he separates physically, that kind of creates a hesitation for me there. And then so that's just about all I have for Thomas again. Uh, He entered this conversation or this analysis at the bottom of this four. I actually don't think he's at the bottom of this four anymore. Um, But, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. No disrespect to the last person on the list. I do think Thomas has moved over A.D. Mitchell at this point for me. But I do still prefer Coleman. And so while it is true, you know, while it is true that I prefer the separation and while it is true that I see Coleman struggle with separation – I really also see some point of attack brilliance from Coleman, right? So let's, let's just start right off with Coleman's approach. Now, when it comes to wide receiver blocking, this is not something I really care about, especially when it comes to can you block well. However, when it comes to how you approach your position, there are things I believe you can learn about a player by the way they block. And that's my way of saying if there's one wide receiver I watched on this ta- on these tapes that wanted to hit corners, it was Coleman. Coleman wanted to pop corners. And I think you see some of that tenacity take shape in the way that he tries to win at the point of attack as a receiver. You see some absolute brilliance from Coleman at the point of attack in the LSU game uh, against Wake Forest a couple times. Uh, there was a play I watched the Miami game on the All 22 for this one and there you could tell throughout the entire game cuz he didn't put up very many numbers against Miami. And you could tell throughout the entire game he was getting more and more and more and more frustrated. And then he finally got a red zone rep and he was draped, but he found a way to bring it down and you could just see the the frustration vent out on that huge play and those are the kind of things that you can see Coleman do you you know you will see him get frustrated a little bit but when he is at the peak of his powers it is really just a, it doesn't matter where you are i'm going to catch this pass now it is true that there are some inconsistencies if you look at pff he actually does not have a super high rate of contested catches in terms of catching the the opportunities he gets. But I do blame this at least somewhat on Jordan Travis. And I try not, you know, this is why we use things like data to supplement our own eyes. And that's why I have talked about so many things with Coleman's, you know, proportional production. And so I guess what I'm trying to say by all that is just do understand that my eye is subjective. So maybe I'm seeing what I want to see, but there are a lot of plays where it just seems like Coleman has created a pocket that can win and the ball is not going to that pocket. And while Travis makes mistakes outside of this too, Travis really does seem to me like the kind of guy who he can throw strikes, but he can't spot the corner, you know, and if people don't know baseball, might not follow what i'm trying to say there but you know he can get it in the right vicinity of where the ball needs to go but he doesn't hit the right window a lot of the times at least in my opinion that's just my jordan travis opinion uh so i'm not again i'm not trying to dog him too much but it's also important to mention that we've dealt with two quarterbacks so far and the first two quarterbacks might be off the board in the top 20 picks Jordan Travis is not going to go in the first two days. So that is a substantial difference here. And then as a Yak receiver, I really like Coleman's ability to be a bully. I didn't watch the weight game for this analysis, but I did watch the weight game a while back for my deeper dives. And there's one play on that game in particular where he just gets a screen. There's no, you know, real scheme up to it, by which I just mean it's not like it's not like they're pulling out blockers. It's not like There's motion. It's not like there's anything like that. It's just we're going to throw to a far hash. With a one on one situation. And if Coleman gets past this guy, there's a lot of green grass in front of him. And that's what happens. And so I guess my point in saying all this is that, yes, all four of these guys have some degree of matchup nightmare just by the fact that they're all six foot three, right? But Coleman, because of his physicality, even compared to Franklin's speed or particularly Thomas's speed, because Thomas has the physicality and the speed, I think Coleman represents. The highest potential to be a matchup nightmare because of that physicality. I believe that Coleman's going to be somebody who, if even marginally successful, could substantially change the way defenses plan against him because there's certain players you're just not going to want to leave him out on an island against because if he can physically dominate the player you put out there, you have a chance to, you know, need to just change things up dramatically Because Coleman, just moving Coleman around might be able to just beat you up a little bit. And so I think that's the appeal with Coleman and specifically being so young and being able to develop, you know, beyond where he is right now. You know, Coleman has an interesting background from the standpoint of he was, you know, there's a lot of these guys who are cross-sport athletes, right? And it doesn't get brought up with all of them, Um, really most of them. But most of them also don't, you know, practice with Michigan State's basketball team, right? Coleman was a very serious you know basketball player at least you know not in the sense that he was as serious as he was into football maybe but he was serious enough that it was something that was at least a, a, you know a significant amount of his time you hope with the attitude with the tenacity and with the natural ability that specialization might kick in because again going way back to the beginning i think the importance of putting these production profiles in relative terms is that Coleman has not yet gotten to an age, you know, at the same relative age as Coleman is right now. Brian Thomas Jr. is a guy that no one had ever heard about. You know, obviously prospect people had heard of him, but after his disappointing sophomore year where he did basically nothing, people had basically moved on and said, this guy's not that good at football. So we thought Brian Thomas Jr. was not very good at football on the college level when he was the age that Keon Coleman is now. So that's just important to remember that Keon Coleman is this young player who has all this opportunity to develop in front of him again not huge differences but when you're looking at two developmental players i think that's kind of why i lean to the younger one is that relative age difference as well as for coleman the specialization potential as moving as he moves on from the basketball background So my final note on both these players, Keon Coleman in particular is a controversial player right now. By my own beliefs about separation, Coleman does have some concerns, and by a lot of the market opinions about how important separation is, he's being almost dismissed outright. But at the same time, there's access to some great things through his point of attack abilities. When you consider where he is in his development curve, it's easy to see where Coleman has all these intrigues and upsides. While Coleman wasn't the most productive player this year, I do blame Travis for some of that. And so, you know, considering all these things and considering the natural abilities and the fact that he did have a really nice productive season as a sophomore and was at least solid in his junior year, Coleman is the second most likely on this list to crack my wide receiver, my top five wide receivers. I do believe right now I'm gonna be putting Franklin at four and Coleman at five after this analysis, with Brian Thomas Jr. at six, who just has all the tools you can want from a physical standpoint in terms of speed, in terms of being able to play at the catch point, being a legitimate six four. I do think, you know, they're both everyone on this list is six three or six four. I think Thomas Jr. is the tallest. I've also heard that from other people. And so when you combine that with the speed that's also second best on this list, probably to Troy Franklin, that's a really impressive one-two punch, but ultimately it's these very physical archetypes that at least I've felt like I've been trying to shy away from in my own analysis. And while Coleman kind of seems like a physical archetype because of his verticality, I find what he does at the point of attack involves a little bit more translatable football skill to whereas i do see brian thomas as somebody who still has to develop that and because of the fact that in a general sense i i also see brian thomas jr as being slightly behind in his development curve compared to coleman so for these reasons i'm a little bit more skeptical about brian thomas jr's development compared to keon coleman and so that is why he's at wide receiver six. And so last up on this list, A.D. Mitchell, the wide receiver from Texas, who once played at Georgia. Now, have you ever heard the thing where there's a limited amount of people in a room and two of them have the same date of birth? Well, we have four players on this list, and A.D. Mitchell and Brian Thomas Jr. were born on the exact same day. So going back to the Brian Thomas Jr., that puts A.D. Mitchell's birthday right in that first to second quartile range or the gap between being in the youngest group and the second youngest group he is listed at six foot four 196 pounds he is very lean but again that six foot four does have you know he has he has good size going back to this it's kind of the same conversation with brian thomas jr is he a little bit lean and would i feel better if he had the bmi of keon coleman probably but there's no he's nowhere near the the Troy Franklin range, right? Uh just I was watching, you know, these all twenty twos and there just happened to be one play where a uh, Adonai Mitchell went in motion and he crossed in front of Quinn Ewers. And now now Quinn Ewers isn't the biggest quarterback. He's probably like, I don't know, 6'2", 195 But it was just it was you could tell. Like when Adonai Mitchell ran past him, that that's a big dude. Uh he might be lean in the middle and he might play light a little bit and we'll get some of those things, you know, later on in the bit. But he does have very good size that I don't think, you know, even with being 6'4", I don't think people give him credit for a lot of times because, again, he does look uh, a little leaner than uh, some of those size numbers would kind of indicate. Now, I've already kind of spilled the beans on A.D. Mitchell being last on these of these four. Uh, now, I, I still feel confident about him being over everybody I listed on the last show between 8 and 15, but And it's not the only reason, because again, I don't like to use hard lines for any of these things, but it is very much the easiest argument to make that AD Mitchell is just by far, by every number I look at, the worst analytical prospect on this list. In terms of a Peak season, A.D. Mitchell's peak receiving yards percentage was 20.9% in his junior year. That is the lowest by about 6% behind Brian Thomas Jr.'s peak season of 26.7%. Now, A.D. Mitchell did have the best freshman year, but that, you know, it was 29 receptions, 426 yards, and four touchdowns. So it's not like he had a Xavier Worthy freshman year where you could actually consider it a good and productive season. Now, he was hurt the sophomore year, and that's a very key detail because none of these other players have had a significant injury that kept them out for a full season. But when he did get a full season with Texas, the numbers just aren't quite there, right? Uh, Including the 20.9% receiving yards. I don't look at receptions too often because I find that, you know, players like Troy Franklin and Brian Thomas Jr., you don't want to punish them for having lower reception numbers because they score so many 75-yard touchdowns. But it is important to note in in a comparative sense that every other player has had at least a season with 22.4% of their team's receptions. A.D. Mitchell this year was 17.4%. So that's, again, significantly lower. Uh, every other prospect has at least two yards per out run in a season. Keon Coleman, I mentioned how, you know, he had bad quarterback play in the Michigan State year or at least poor efficiency from his quarterbacks in the Michigan State year, but he still had a 2.07 year. Uh, A.D. Mitchell this year with Quinn Ewers had a 1.72. So there's a couple of reasons why I'm not, you know, completely, you know, booting him down my rankings to like wide receiver 15 or anything like that. And we'll get into that. But when we're comparing him, to these near first round prospect profiles I I do think this is a significant reason and probably the driving force and probably should be the driving force to AD Mitchell being the bottom of this tier and I I can completely understand and justify arguments for him being so much lower because again my own philosophies say that these things are very important. And so looking at these things that are very important and seeing A.D. Mitchell score so poorly in them is very significant, right? So I think we should really get right into the film off this because contextualizing these numbers is going to be everything about A.D. Mitchell. And I think, you know, I've tried to avoid talking about 2025 players for, for a bit because, you know, that time will definitely come if you don't know too much about my writing say if you're new to this show and haven't followed it on reddit we will be talking about 2025 prospects pretty early just not before the end of the draft season definitely but you know carson beck the georgia quarterback gets all this uh flack for being a system quarterback and i do understand why because the georgia you know georgia has a system that they run and they spread the ball around a lot and all these things and yada yada but i feel like quinn ewers does not get the system quarterback label because of the fact that he used to be the number one overall prospect. And so I think just by being the number one overall prospect in terms of like high school recruiting, that people just ref- refuse the idea that he could be a system quarterback. But as someone who watches them both play a lot, like Carson Beck makes a lot of downfield over the middle layered throws Quinn Ewers does hit some intermediate throws, but he does a lot of screens, swings. It's it's the most paint-by-numbers offense in college football, right? And when you look at what a quarterback can do in it, you look at the Mac Jones year in his final year at Alabama. Like, that was his second year in the Steve Sarkeesian offense. And so, I guess what I'm getting at all this is the reason that I say wide receiver production is important is because of earning targets. Well, in this offense, it's a lot harder to earn targets because you have so many plays where you are the decoy, right? I mean, you know, I don't know if this is going to make sense to a lot of people, but the image that kept flashing through my head just because it's a little funny, but if you've ever seen Ted Lasso, he tries to demonstrate how to be a decoy in one scene where he's like, you know, hey, look at me over here, over here. And that's what A.D. Mitchell does in every play. He's just, you know, he's, he's kind of just pretending to do something while the play goes to the other half field read. And that happens so frequently on his tape. that It's just so hard to, you know, it's so hard to be like, well, he didn't get a target here or, well, he didn't win here. Well, he didn't even, like, his, his goal wasn't even to win there. Like, that is not the design of the play. And so A.D. Mitchell might end up being the shortest conversation here because it is a lot more about just projecting him you know, obviously all these things are projections, but A.D. Mitchell didn't have the opportunity because of this 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 paint by numbers offense. And I th- I think I do blame that for a lot of this production. So it's hard to, you know, quantify all these things on a show like this because you know A.D. Mitchell's numbers are so objectively bad. But I guess we'll get into some of the traits. You know, he's got the six foot four size. Like I said, he is lean. And sometimes he doesn't play with the play strength that you want to see him play with, but he is a big guy and he has the potential, I think, to be dominant at the catch point. And that's kind of the difference between, you know, AD Mitchell, the top 20 pick, and AD Mitchell, who he is now, which is probably, you know, maybe an early day two pick, like a really early day two pick but A.D. Mitchell has almost no drops in, like, the last two years. He He's very reliable at the catch point. He's very malleable in his movements. He kind of reminds me of, you know, he gets a few different comparisons, but he kind of reminds me of a very unrefined and much smaller version of, like, a Drake London, which, obviously, you know, that's, again, the difference between being a high pick and a day two pick are those different things because Drake London was very refined, very nuanced, and very consistent with his refinement and his nuance. But the way these guys, you know, the way these guys move and shake and they don't have to be the fastest guy on the field but they just seem to you know be able to move in ways that six foot four guys that are that tall that have limbs that long don't usually move in that malleable of a way that easily so when you look at the fact that he has this incredibly low drop percentage and he's been used as a red zone weapon which we'll get to in a bit throughout his career you see this archetype that can develop where he can be this dominant contested catch guy, but he hasn't actually had that many contested catch opportunities in his career. And there are times where he doesn't necessarily look that physically strong at the catch point point. and not being that physically strong at the catch point is a concern for me because, you know, let's just say out of these four, he's either third or fourth. Like I could see an argument with with uh, Franklin. I couldn't see an argument with anybody else uh, in terms of where A.D. Mitchell is at the catch point right now. And so, you know, if he can get that strength to supplement his his natural hands and the fact that he hasn't dropped the ball, that's going to be something that can turn him into a potentially dominant player and making the most out of that malleability. On the same level, he's a very good route runner to a point or to a to a certain rep, right? You can find reps where he has beautiful routes where you can tell he faked the defender so badly and he got the momentum going exactly the way he needed to go. And he moved, he jerked back in another direction so smoothly that, you know, the corner just wasn't expecting it for a guy that big. But you can also find reps on his tape where it kind of feels like maybe, I don't know, he's getting caught in between two ideas or he's a little unsure maybe even of what he's doing. And you see some bad, some bad attempts and some bad routes out there. And it's just this, this level up of consistency, right? Drake London was this incredibly productive player, and he was this incredibly productive player despite the circumstances around him because he was so physical and he was so consistent. A.D. Mitchell has a lot of the same physical upsides, but he's not that physical and he's not that consistent. And so if he can develop those things, that'll be a big deal. Because already this guy is just a red zone assassin. Because, you know, you look at it, this guy has played in five playoff games. He played in four with the University of Georgia. He played in one with Texas. He scored a touchdown in all five of them. Those are Big time games, obviously. And you don't make too much about one game when you're scouting, but you're crazy if you don't think that that's being said in high-level rooms. This is a guy who makes big plays at big moments, and at the end of the day, those plays, if they're coming inconsistently for our fantasy teams, he might not be the best wide receiver. But if he can make red zone plays, that's going to be a a 53-man roster guy all day. So we have seen him play in this higher volume role a few times. You can see the Kansas tape. You can see the Kansas state tape, I believe uh, against Oklahoma state. You know, these are, these are games where he had hundred yards. A lot of them, he had 10 receptions. And so you can see there are times, at least a few times throughout his college career, specifically in this last year, where they kind of said, okay, we believe that you're, you can break somebody today and we're just going to let you break the defense today. And that's a very encouraging thing to say, see, But on the flip side, about eight or nine of those games, he only got about three receptions. So he was almost completely phased out of the game, especially in terms of a volume target perspective, right? He might've gotten an important target or a red zone target, but he was only getting three receptions a game for a good number of those games. And so that's, you know, this, this big issue where there is value in what A.D. Mitchell is doing and it's it's easy to see the value but in terms of what we're actually looking for and what has proven to be success from a metric perspective over time in terms of generating targets in terms of generating a percentage of yards Ad mitchell scores very poorly in those areas so as much as you can see these dominant games and you could even like say project and say well if he returned for the senior year with worthy and jatavion sanders going to the draft he would have put up incredible numbers this year and you know maybe that's true But at the end of the day, we haven't seen it. And then just one last film note on approach. I did notice or have seen some people talk about maybe approach things with A.D. Mitchell on field. And in my opinion, there's just a lot of reps in terms of, you know, maybe taking reps off, I guess what I'm getting at. Uh, And I guess in my opinion, it's more coming down to that same paint-by-numbers Sarkeesian system thing where it's not necessarily that he's taking a play off. It's just that, like, it's a sprint out to the right and he's on the left side and like, there's just nothing for him to do on the play. Even selling the fake is only relevant. If the boundary corner is willing to run 65 yards in a diagonal, maybe even more than 65 yards across the field, for the outside chance that the play breaks out and he can also make that distance in time. You know what I mean? On top of that, there are a lot of positive vibes around A.D. Mitchell off-field. I mentioned this in my very first show. He has a article on the Players Tribune, he is very well beloved by Georgia, which is significant to me because you are not always loved by the school you leave and transfers or the fan base you leave when you transfer. You are often disliked. There is sometimes you get a little bit of you know media mud. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, maybe it's just people airing out the things they disliked about you the most while you were there. A.D. Mitchell had all positive vibes when he left Georgia and went to Texas, and he had all positive vibes at Texas. So this is a guy that, you know, seems to be someone who coaches like a lot. So, you know, he did play in two systems that don't really require him to do much on a lot of plays. And so I think that's more so where it comes from. Maybe that's just my eye but A.D. Mitchell is a player, on just one final note tor- towards him, that is probably the, the hardest evaluation. You know, I talked about Brian Thomas Jr. is probably the easiest evaluation to me, right? Maybe not the easiest to rank, but the easiest evaluation. Big, tall, fast. Uh, doesn't necessarily do nuanced things as well as you want him to do. Where do you rank a guy like that uh, with first-round draft capital? A.D. Mitchell's the hardest because it's like, when it comes to traits, he has a lot of traits that I really like, that I really covet. With just his size, ability to move, and ability to catch the ball alone, even though he's not necessarily consistent yet, or doesn't necessarily have the play strength yet that I want to see with a player that has that six foot four frame, those things alone are things that often are intriguing to me because they can turn into high volume roles, right? I mean, this is a guy who some of his high upside comps might you know, look like a Drake London or DeAndre Hopkins, you know, a guy who comes back to the ball a lot and makes all those catches and just gets a really high volume target role. But at the same time, that kind of guy you would want to see be insanely productive at the college level. And while he does have excuses between the injury in the sophomore year and the paint-by-numbers offense in the junior year, at the end of the day, excuses aren't a reason for us to make somebody be a positive, right? I think too often in fantasy... Maybe in life, I don't know. But too often in fantasy, we find an excuse for something and we say, okay, well, now that we found an excuse, we can just imply the positive. An excuse does not allow you to just apply the positive. The positive, we can't just assume that the positive would have happened if the excuse didn't happen. We don't know what would have happened. Maybe we would have, you know, exposed some of these players more and we would have been more confident that they weren't right before the draft. That's certainly possible as well. So I think A.D. Mitchell has an excused absence, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he has good production and it still makes his production worse than everybody on this list, even though Brian Thomas Jr.'s peak season isn't all that impressive to me. So with him being last in production, with him feeling the most like a project and with me not being able to fully sell myself on the trades, even though he has all these things that I look for the play strength in particular is just not quite there for me to make him as projectable as say an uh, 85, 90% of Drake London. I don't think he's quite there because if the play strength is a problem at the next level, then the drops, the the hands aren't going to matter because I, unless he becomes that elite route runner. So, you know, again, he, he has the two paths. I think that's the big thing with AD Mitchell is that he has the two paths, but he is the biggest project and so for that reason right now I have him at wide receiver 7 and at the bottom of this list. And so that's all I have for the show today. I hope you enjoyed my deeper dives in these players. It's it's something that I haven't really done in this capacity yet and they were probably about three times longer than some of the other players I've talked about and so it was just a it was just a little hard to organize and I felt a little bit listening through it that I could have done a little bit better but I think they turned out okay and so just to add some final thoughts maybe something that I I, you know caught when I was listening through it but in regards to Troy Franklin you know there's a conversation I almost put at the beginning of this wide receiver show today but I didn't know how to quite phrase it and I was worried that it would put some people off so you know where better to put it than the very end when all the diehards are going to hear it. I think route running can be an extremely confused term with what we do. And and by that I just mean that I feel like so many people Mean so many different things when they say it. And I believe this is an important conversation with Troy Franklin in particular because Troy Franklin's route running can get a little bit controversial in how we talk about it. Because when you look at the physical traits like the ones I discussed in the podcast in terms of the speed, the acceleration, the deceleration, the ability to stop, I think it can give the appearance that he is a very good route runner. But if you're basing your opinion on route running on crispness, precise footwork, things of this nature, there are things in Troy Franklin's game that are say, a bit rounded compared to someone like uh, Lad McConkie, who even though I don't rank Lad McConkie, you know, as highly as many others do, I can acknowledge that he does those technical things with a very high proficiency. So, you know, obviously there is, you know, room. I'm not saying there's not room to use the term route running or anything like that. I'm not trying to, you know, go crazy or anything, but I guess my point is just that I think sometimes we conflate route running with separation and, That's not necessarily the truth, I think, at least in my opinion. I think route running has a lot more to do with, you know, the technique involved, and separation can sometimes go beyond technique, and do I think that Troy Franklin could get a little bit better in his technique? Yes, I think he's fairly good, but I do think he can get better. I do think there are things that come off around it at times, but I think he will be able to separate because of the physical side of it, even if the route running is not necessarily as precise, Now, again, with all these guys, that's why I keep saying there there are projections here. And that is the projection into Troy Franklin is the precise route running and him not getting destroyed at the catch point. But uh, Franklin and Coleman are two players. They're the two players that are competing for wide receiver four for me the most right now. Coleman is a bit of a projection, but he's a projection I like a good bit. Now, keep in mind, he didn't even join Florida State until after spring last year he was a late transfer he joined the team late in the spring and ultimately I think you want to balance how you make excuses for players that's why I do all these things that are both objective and subjective that's why I was getting into it with being worried about my subjective eye blaming too many things on Jordan Travis but that's why I like to use the proportional numbers and why Coleman does give me some solace because his proportional numbers are fairly solid he has a very very good junior year that does not get enough credit and then when you look at his numbers this year through the proportional lens I like to apply the touchdown number is incredible and the yard number while not great is still in the 22-ish percent range which while below the thresholds I look for is not I mean you know it's not nearly as low as going just back to the player I just talked about. You know, my whole issue with Lad McConkey is his peak season that he's had decent amount of snaps and is 17%. So, I mean, from a statistical and output perspective, Keon Coleman's bad season was substantially better than the best thing we've seen Lad McConkey do in a fairly high volume. So, I mean, I know those are two kind of odd players to compare, but the point there is just through the proportional lens, the junior year isn't quite as bad, and with the junior year not being quite as bad, and these kind of things being objective, I think it also helps that I have kind of this objective and subjective side for Keon Coleman, and that is why he's competing with Franklin for my wide receiver four. The one note I had on Brian Thomas Jr. that I didn't really get to was just slot fade, like I just wrote slot fade a few times in my notes, and you know, none of the data that I've seen suggests he plays inside a ton, and I did see him play outside a lot when I was watching, but like, Boy, did he have a bunch of production on those slot fades. The Florida game was a lot of it. Uh, there was one other tape that I saw a few times too, but you know, it just goes to show how he is—you know—that guy who's who does at times play in that smaller wide receiver role, despite what his size is. Uh, you know, he his role is. Let's see who can get to the pylon first from from this position a couple times, and it's intriguing to see from the taller guy and if he can if he can prove that the taller, bigger, big point of attack things can be a bit higher level more consistently. That'll obviously pull it all together. But he really does run that that speed receiver route tree quite often, and then finally, Ad Mitchell is just a player I, I like a lot of his first round traits. He kind of seems to be a player that always seems to has seemed to be Around the first round conversation, you know, when he transferred to Texas, he was the only player in the transfer portal, including guys like Keon Coleman, who was given the five star rating by 247 sports and five star ratings for recruiting services typically align with first round grades. That's why there are 32 of them for high school recruits. And so I think A.D. Mitchell is really the the big, strong argument for, for why these things are not hard lines. Right. I do believe in these things. They are principles. And that is why I have have a hard time putting A.D. Mitchell over wide receiver seven, uh, even into wide receiver six. But there are things that he does really well that intrigue me subjectively that go beyond just the numbers and the data. And there are excuses I have, including the injury and including the paint by numbers offense. So a lot of the same stuff there with A.D. Mitchell. But on the subjective side of things, where it's just my opinions and looking at things, I do really like Seeing some of the translatable things with A.D. Mitchell. It's just most of the the numbers tell me that I shouldn't trust anything really there. And so I thought about touching base on the rising stock reports on J.J. McCarthy this week, as well as Javon Baker, because Javon Baker especially seems to be a pretty hot name, and I kind of feel like I messed up a bit because, you know, not that I feel like Baker should have necessarily been ranked in the top 15, though I did mark him as my number one honorable mention, putting him basically at 16th. But questions about Baker specifically were one of the main reasons I chose to do that show. So I really should not have brushed through him so quickly, even in those honorable mentions. And so now I don't know if these things are going to be next week or later in this week. Part of it may depend on if I can figure out what I'm focusing on next week. You know, there will be something to talk about with the Combine, but most of that will be after the Combine in terms of things before the Combine. There's really not much to talk about. Even as someone who likes to talk about, you know, philosophical things, I think I could cover everything I wanted to discuss in the combine in five or ten minutes. I can cover most of it in 20 seconds, which is just it's more about the buzz than the than the players to some extent. You know, it's more about listening than it is watching. And that's really all you need to know about the combine right there. So we're done with that. So anyway, like I said at the start of the show, if you have any ideas, do let me know. And if you have not subscribed to the Substack, consider doing that as well. The biggest thing though, if you like the show at all, just keep listening. If you think you might like the show, just keep giving it a shot as it means a lot to me and it does continue to support the growth, you know, tell someone else if you can do that. But ultimately I just would like to see you back next week. So, you know, have a good week and take care.